Well, the world's going to hell. <laughs> I'm serious, just look at the TV and you'll see it. And I, I don't mean the news, I mean science fiction and fantasy. The end of the world is everywhere if you start to look for it. And the plains of Westeros where the dead stalk the living in Game of Thrones. Right, where mayhem and violence will get you killed, but doing something good will get you killed faster. Uh, the Hunger Games, books about children who are killing children for the entertainment of a dystopian world, which were ironically made into movies. Or Breaking Bad, a TV show about an anti-hero, the average chemistry teacher who becomes a terrible villain and drug kingpin, or just about any old uh, zombie movie or TV show or soap opera like The Walking Dead. Uh, the end of the world is everywhere. People go to work all day, come home, and watch the destruction of the human race and everything we hold dear for entertainment. <laughs> that sounds relaxing to me. Look at the death of humanity. That's, that's, that just doesn't really... It's, it's a really interesting thing that we do in our time. And it's gotten to the point that these guys, um, Juice and Wilkinson, I'm stealing some of their stuff right now, uh, they would say that there is an identifiable thing, a, a secular apocalypse in our time. And there has never before in the history of the world been a secular apocalypse, a story about the end of the world and the end of humanity that is in no way religious. In a secular apocalypse, right, people are bad, things are bad, everything gets worse, and then it's over. <laughs> that is, and that story is so common in our pop culture and the only way that that could be that common, it could be that popular, is if you walked out into the world and everyone already kind of bought into that story. If you could walk up to a person on the street and say, the world's going to hell, they'd say, yeah, it sure, sure looks like it. Uh, there's, humanity is doomed. Yeah, that seems about right. It's into a world with that kind of despair that a Christian apocalypse has a lot of good news. Because in a Christian apocalypse, things are bad. People are bad. And it get worse. But then there's an end, and the end is good news. And the end is the end of endings. It's the end of sorrow. Tears get wiped away. Oppression and evil are destroyed. And people get set free. Woe to those who have destroyed creation. And to those who have been crying, how long, O oh Lord? Is there any hope for the future? Oh, they get an answer. The trumpet sounds. The dead are raised. The king comes back. It's good news. For an apocalyptic season like the one that we are in. Not just because of what's in pop culture, and not just because of what you will see on the news, if you're looking, and what you'll see in the world we live in, if you're looking. But we're in an apocalyptic season because Christmas is an apocalyptic season. It's one in which we remember that Christ came a long time ago, and that Christ will come again. That's what the word Advent means, that he came and that he will come. And we're right here in between. And we remember what it was like when he came. And we know what it will be like when he comes. And that gives us hope. We hang on to that. We're clinging to that in this season. It's our hope for the future. Uh, turn with me if you want to. And the book of Romans. It's going to be in chapter 8. Romans 8.18 is what we're going to do today. We're continuing in a series called Hope. And the da 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 Hope for things that you struggle to have hope in. Romans 8.18. Uh, hope for yourself was last week. I think we struggled to have hope for ourselves. 
And this week is hope for the future. And we definitely struggle to have hope for the future in our time. Romans 8.18. Paul is talking here. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we wait for what we do not see, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is in the nature of hope to be dissatisfied with the present, to long for something that is not yet. really want, maybe in the future, or maybe just something that's not yet present. And we hope for what we do not see, Paul says. Not for what we see. Who hopes for what they see? Who hopes for what you see in the world around you? Who looks around at the world right now and says, seems about right. Um, doesn't need any changes. Who looks at the American political system as it is right now and says, I love this. This is going well. Couldn't get any better. Who looks at the state of race relations in the United States, or the know, geopolitical system, or the nature of globalization in the world in which we live and says, good job, everybody. <laughs> we figured it out. Who hopes for what is seen? Paul says, we, we're hoping for what we do not see. In fact, we're waiting for something. We wait for it with patience. Those last four words at the end of verse 25, we wait for it with patience. Those are all one word in Greek. Apek dekomai. Uh, which is to say, um, it's a series of prepositions slammed into a Greek word. And before the New Testament, it basically is just a really strong word for waiting around. So you're waiting, but you're not just, you're, you're waiting at the edge of your seat. You're waiting with a anticipation. You're sort of filled with energy. You're vibrating with urgency as you wait. You are very ready for the thing that you are waiting for. But the New Testament authors loved that word, and they chose to use it for one very particular kind of waiting. They use it as an almost technical term all over the letters of Paul and Peter. You're using it really in a very particular way, and it means, uh, well, to wait for the resurrection. They use it as a technical term for something that Christians do, something that's built into the Christian vocation. <clears throat> a Christian is to love their neighbor, right? A Christian is to follow Jesus. A Christian is to read their Bibles. A Christian is to wait. Part of what it means to be a Christian is that our lives would be characterized by waiting, by a massive dissatisfaction with the present by a longing for something that is coming. A refusal to accept the status quo. That is built into what it means to be a Christian. We're called to be people who wait. And waiting for a very particular thing, the return of Jesus Christ. This crazy, apocalyptic inbreaking that is coming at some point in the future. It is nearer now than it was a minute ago. And so we wait. But the problem is waiting is a dirty word for Americans. We don't, we don't love waiting. If we wait, it's because somebody made a mistake somewhere. Uh, it's because McDonald's has not been fast enough in the fast food department, or because I forgot to pre-order my coffee with the thumbs on Starbucks. Uh, <laughs> that I didn't emoji order my pizza along the way. Uh, that's, 
that's really what happens. That's how we end up waiting, and it's it's really frustrating to us because it means that, that we're not getting exactly what we want right when we want it. We don't love waiting. I don't think anyone really loves waiting, but as a people, I think Americans have a lot of trouble with it. And yet, it's part of the Christian vocation. Henry Nouwen talks about, uh, in one of his books, he says, a waiting person is a patient person. The word patience means the willingness to stay where we are and live the situation out to the full in the belief that something hidden there will manifest itself to us. Impatient people are always expecting the real thing to happen somewhere else, and therefore want to go elsewhere. The moment is empty. But patient people dare to stay where they are. Patient living means to live actively in the present and wait there. Waiting, then, is not passive. It involves nurturing the moment as a mother nurtures the child that is growing in her womb. The most important and frequent use of the word wait is to define the attitude of a soul Godward. It implies a listening ear, a heart responsive to the wooing of God. A heart responsive to the wooing of God. The attitude of the soul Godward. That's what we're called to be. People who are waiting with a kind of urgency and expectation, right at the edge of their seat. <laughs> the kind of waiting, actually, that my children are doing right now for a particular day that is coming. I know what will happen to me on the 25th of December. I will not get to sleep then. Uh, I will hear, uh, without a shadow, without a sort as Matthew hits the door and yells, Dada! It's time to get up! Dada! Is it time for presents? Which isn't really a question, it's a statement in the form of a question. <laughs> Just this, this deep kind of demanding, there, there, I won't be able to delay that moment for an instant because of how much he's waiting for it. And that is the kind of waiting we're called to. The kind of waiting that comes to God the Father and, and Pleased to him, and says, "Is it now? Is it now? Are you? Is it? Are you coming now? Is it now?" Uh, that refuses actually to let God delay even for a moment. That's the kind of waiting we're called to. Paul says at the verse eighteen, "I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is about to be revealed to us." Uh, that's how excited he is for what's coming. But I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing. I don't know that Paul has seen our present sufferings. He talks about creation groaning, but I think we've been groaning for a while now. I mean, it's hard to look at the world that we live in, hard to, to imagine this continuing and expect a better future than we've got right now. Hard not to imagine things getting worse and worse and worse. Because we do have an American political system that seems pretty broken. At the very least, you could say, we're hopelessly turned in on ourselves. And other countries don't seem to be doing a lot better. And if you pay attention to the news, you're going to hear an awful lot about Russia and China trying to rule the world. We're North Korea getting more and more dangerous and not being checked at all. You hear about countries like Venezuela whose leaders don't really care about their own people or their own government, and just through incompetence and evil have slowly and steadily destroyed a pretty decent life that a lot of people have. There are people called the Rohingya who are being persecuted by a government run by somebody who once won a Nobel Peace Prize. She won a Nobel Peace Prize. These are the people running countries. These are the people who are... This is hard, right, in the world that we live in, and to look around at our day-to-day -day lives and think, things are going to get better. They're going to get better 10 years from now. They're going to be better 20 years from now. That is, actually, I think, harder and harder. And the number two cause of death for people ages 10 to 34 is suicide which is to say the number two cause of death is despair. A total lack of hope for the future. 
And it doesn't get much better after 34. It's just that heart disease gets worse. We live in a time where it is really difficult to imagine the future will get any better. Where I actually know people, and you probably know people, who don't want to get married because they don't want to get involved in a world that's this messed up. Who definitely don't want to have kids because they're afraid to bring children into a world that's this messed up. Who look at something like climate change, and maybe you don't believe in climate change, but at the very least you could say we're fouling our rivers, we're fouling our air, we're destroying our soil. Doesn't look good. We need some hope for the future. I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is about to be revealed to us. This is exactly the kind of thing people don't like about the Bible. Uh, this is the kind of thing Karl Marx talks about when he talks about the Bible. The Bible is just this thing that tells people like, hey, it's not that bad. It's going to get better later. Don't worry about right now. And it's important, I think, for us to remember that Paul has some street cred in the world of suffering. Um, that this guy has actually been beaten repeatedly. Uh, he knows exactly what abuse feels like. Uh, he suffers a lot so that the poor all over the world would come to know Jesus, but also would get food in their belly. But I don't think the street cred is actually enough um, to really explain that sentence. I think that it's the world revealed. That's kind of the key to understanding. I consider the present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed to us. And that word revealed in Greek is apocalypsis. Apocalypse. It's a word that we think means the end of the world. But it actually just means revelation. We think it means the end of the world because there's a book of the Bible called Revelation, and there's a lot about the end of the world in there, and uh, it sort of gives sort of gives the book of that, right? Uh, so people use it to describe, you know, traffic jams and snowstorms and Marvel comic villains, apocalypse. But apocalypse is really, it's, it's a word that really means revelation. It's a different kind of revelation. It's not just, hey, look over there. It's the kind of revelation that happens when a bird um, comes out of an egg. That's the kind of revelation, so that the egg doesn't do very well. It's the kind of revelation that happens when a missile destroys a bunker and reveals what's inside. It doesn't go very well for the bunker. This is the kind of revelation that we're talking about. An apocalyptic revelation is the kind that, that reaches into reality and tears it apart to make room for something else and puts it back together in a way that is dramatic and different. And the Bible talks about this time and time and time and time and time again, that God will come here and now, and God will take infinity and put it in something small and finite, shattering, very much like an egg. Uh, but the things in particular that get shattered are all the unjust structures in the world, all the oppressive systems in the world, all the things that make people hopeless and despair, all the things that really abuse the poor and make sure that people who are in power can do all sorts of secret, ugly things in the dark. All of that gets destroyed, and all of those people will stand before a just God, and it will be a wonderful day for those who've been crying out for it. And a terrible day for those who thought nobody would ever know that they would get away with what they had been doing. A God who's going to rip the world apart and put it back together into new heaven and a new earth. That's the kind of revelation that Paul is talking about. So when he says, I consider the present sufferings aren't that bad, he's not saying that they're not sufferings. He's saying, I'm just waiting for the day that God comes and does away with all this. That he shows up and dramatically changes the world in which we live. But again, when you talk about that kind of revelation, people say, so... Does that mean that we don't, we don't do anything? That we're not called to be people who, who act in the present? We just wait for God to show up and we're excited about the day that he does, but why be a lawyer? Why be a doctor? Why show up and, and help kids in school to learn math? Because God's going to come. Uh, there's a German theologian named Jürgen Moltmann who says that Christian hope is not a waiting or a matter of wait and see in that way. It's a creative expectation of the things that God has promised with the resurrection of Christ. 
Those who passionately await something prepare themselves in their community for it. In these preparations, the path of the coming one is prepared through attempts to correspond to what is anticipated. The person who hopes for the realm of freedom will desire liberation from political oppression here and now. The person who hopes for a new heaven and a new earth will respect the earth here and now and will develop a reverence for earthly life. The person who longs for righteousness and justice will work for those things here and now. The person who hopes for eternally living life will be seized here and now and will make that life live wherever he or she can. That we work toward a future that we know God is going to bring. That we live in anticipation of that future that God is going to bring. Not believing that we can build the kingdom on our own. Not believing that we could in any way do what Jesus Christ is going to do. But we know what's coming and so we want to live in line with that. So the structures we build aren't the ones that are destroyed when God shows up. So we wait. And creation groans, he said, uh, waiting for the same thing. And we groan along with it, waiting uh, for adoption, for the redemption of our bodies. There's this lesser-known story in the, the Christmas story, and it's lesser-known, I think, because uh, there aren't any angels, and uh, it's just not exciting. You know, it's not sexy enough to make it into a children's book. That's really what it is. Uh, and so in Luke 2.36, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At the moment she came, she began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's a little old lady. A little old lady who's been a widow. She got married and she's been a widow since the age of 20 or 25 when her husband died. But still she waits in hope. And because of history, we can tell you that this woman lived through the siege of Jerusalem where Pompey walked into the city, burned buildings, and killed over 10,000 Jews. Friends, neighbors, people she knew. And still she waits and hopes. She was around when Rome took possession of Israel and Jerusalem and said, this country is our country. Your laws are our laws. Your gods are our gods. And still she waits and hopes. This little old lady praying day and night, day and night, because she knows that the God she has put her trust in will not betray her trust. That the God she hopes in will absolutely deliver on that hope. Day and night, day and night, day and night, and when Jesus shows up, a little tiny baby, his mom shows up to thank God for what he's done. She is ready, and she immediately sees it for what it is. This is the thing we've been waiting for. This is the thing that we have been hoping for. This is the one Messiah. And she starts telling everybody she sees, 84-year-old widow, everybody she sees, if you have been waiting for the hope of Jerusalem, it's this. If you have been hoping and praying for the redemption of God's people, it's this. If you are waiting for the Messiah, if you are waiting, if you have put all of your eggs in God's basket, if you are hoping for the future, this is what you're hoping for. You and I are called to wait like that. Not to be stuck like we're at the DMV, but to believe that God is going to show up. To be on the edge of our seat until God shows up. To wait and hope, wait and hope, and never 
give up on that. Because we absolutely know that he's coming. We absolutely know that he's coming because he came once before. And that's our hope for the future. We pray with you. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you. We thank you for all that you've done when you came to Christmas so long ago. But we remember, oh Lord, that things are not okay. That there are so many things that you need to get to work on right now. And we love you and we trust you. And that's why we know we can say, how long, oh Lord? How long, oh Lord, do we have to live in a world where everyone wants to fight everyone else? How long, oh Lord, do we have to live in such exhausting times? How long, oh Lord, do we have to be haunted by despair? Abuse and misery. Do we have to look at injustice in our world? And corruption in our society? How long, oh Lord, will children starve in Yemen? But we know you're listening. And we know you're coming. And we say, come now. Come soon. We are clinging to you, God. You're our hope for the future. And I pray, God, where hope seems to have died or at least dimmed in so many people in this room, I pray that you would that you would sing that song again in our hearts. That we would at least hear the tune. And remember that all is not lost. And the things are darkest before the dawn. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.